This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat. <clears throat> Pick up Colonel Kurtz's path at New Mung Ba. Follow it, learn what you can along the way. When you find the Colonel, infiltrate his team by <clears throat> whatever means available and terminate the Colonel's command. Terminate. He's out there operating without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. And he is still in the field commanding troops. Terminate with extreme prejudice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the pilot episode of Hollywood Babylon. It's going to be a recurring show that I do with my friend Evan Hopper. How's it going, Evan? How's it going, bud? And uh, the show is going to live on the Patreon feed, but this pilot is going to come out on the main feed. So if, um, if you want to check out the Patreon platform, you can join for as little as $1 a month and get uh, you know access to all the bonus content. And for $5 a month, you get access to all of the episodes early. You get early access to everything. So this, um, this uh, sub-series is going to be about films, uh, not necessarily horror films because there's necromaniacs for that, but I would say kind of like uh, films classics, you know, things that are significant movies that are meaningful to both of us and um, are worth talking about and possibly sharing with people who haven't seen it. And uh, so do you think Apocalypse Now, even though you and I consider it to be this iconic film, do you think it's like widely viewed by, viewed by um, you know, say younger people maybe? I don't think so. No, I think it's uh, probably a slept on film. So when did you first watch this movie and how, you know, when did you realize the brilliance of this film? I don't know if I necessarily realized the brilliance of the film when I first saw the movie, because I was probably around 10 years old. Um, my father, um, who was military brat, um, was just always a huge, you know, huge advocate of, of old war movies. So I saw a lot of that growing up um, with him. And I guess he felt when I was 10 that I was like ready for a film like this, which is definitely a little bit more grotesque than some like the, you know, the, the black and white, you know, John Wayne horror, uh, war movies and stuff like this. And, um, and I remember seeing it the first time and just like, you know, being young, um, the things that stood out to me the most were like a lot of the music that was in there. Cause my parents both um, were really into, you know, that that era of music. And obviously, like, the doors are pretty uh, prominent throughout this uh, this movie. And I remember being a kid and, like, just sitting around in the living room and my parents listening to things like the doors and et cetera um, on the sound system that we had in our house. And so when, that, when I first saw that, that was probably the thing that stuck out to me the most. But when I got older in my teenage years, um, I revisited the movie again. And I think that was probably when I started to really 
because at that point I was like reading a lot more and I was I was definitely more interested in these are uh, you know these archetypical like uh, characters that pop up in books and film and um, seeing like Marlon Brando's like performance in this movie um, really stuck out to me as like yeah this is this is something special this is something different so I would say that's maybe in my teenage years, maybe around like 13, 14 um, is when I, I started to appreciate this movie. Yeah, right on, man. I mean, I, I was really young when I saw this movie. I think I might have been like 10 years old maybe when I saw this movie yeah, with, with yeah, my dad. Yeah. And uh, we saw them. He took me to see this in a movie theater, okay? Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, Now, anyone who listens to Necromaniacs will know that one of my earliest film memories as a, a basically almost a toddler was going to see The Exorcist with my family um, and at a drive-in, you know? And so, I mean, probably the two biggest, you know, film incidents in my life were watching this movie at, at way too young of an age and also watching The Exorcist at way too young of an age. So Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I, have, I, have, I have one of those, too. Um, around the same age, my dad showed me uh, the movie Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. Yeah. And uh, I, remember, I remember, like being a kid and shitting my pants when the chest burster scene happens sure. <laughs> and like but like something about that i don't know maybe it's just because the way that i'm wired like it I instantly like even though i was terrified by it like it instantly like fascinated me and i became hooked on like the darker stuff you know because it was just like it, there was such a visceral response to like movies like that you know so I'm very grateful to have the experience. I don't know. I don't know if I, if I had children myself, I wouldn't let them watch shit like that at that age. But, but uh, I'm glad I had that opportunity, though, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that was the first time I saw it, and my dad. My dad was in the military, but he didn't see any action. He um, was in that of that age between. He was a little bit like too old for like he. He was in the military before Vietnam, but he was okay. not in the military during the Korean War. So he was in that slice of time that was between those two wars okay and uh so he didn't you know he didn't see any any combat or anything like that and um you know he was always a big fan of like war movies and you know as a kid i'd watched you know anzio and the great escape which is like not really a war movie it was like a prisoner of war movie um, yeah you know i was way into like that kind of stuff like you know Ar yeah i liked Ar um movies. like the long the longest day was yeah. like a really good one and stuff like that yeah i, I remember all those so yeah. i'd never seen war portrayed this way you know so i remember i had a lot of questions after i left the film with my dad i was like you know like what's you know but he didn't know either because he'd never been in combat sure and um as the years went by i started reading because i was still very fascinated by the movie because it was such a weird I'm like, was that what war is like? Is I thought it was like all organized and you know all this kind of stuff, you know. And I would read articles about it. Every now and then, you'd you'd pick up something like a magazine, and there'd be an article about this film, or you'd hear people talk about it, and uh, it would it would say that veterans were like, yeah, you know, that's kind of how it was. People were on acid, doing heroin. There was no leadership. <laughs> it was fucking crazy. There was just total chaos. Like no one knew what was going on ever, you know. And and that's piqued my interest and I think when I was in high school we had purchased this on VHS tape so I was starting to watch it a lot more and Taxi Driver and Apocalypse Now were like my go-to films as well as all the horror stuff I was watching throughout my sure. high school years and uh yeah just I started really resonating with the film uh because of just this 
very staunch like anti-war kind of vibe and we can get down to like at the end of this we're going to talk about our our actual closing thoughts on this whole film but and the movie has held up over the years as being just an incredible film and also that message has never really diminished with me you know and and no i'm glad you brought sorry if anything i've i've it's blossomed into other ideas so we can talk about that towards the end of this thing yeah I think it's I think it's I think it's uh, great that you that you also see it as sort of like an anti-war movie because I I think of this movie <clears throat> in in much of the same way um, that uh, the 1968 movie Always uh, Always Quiet on the Western Front um, is which is another war movie but it shows shows the grittier side of war not like the glorified like you know like you know the the allies storm the beach and then they they overcome and you know persevere and all this you know um which a lot of war movies at the time did you know because no one wants to see the hero die or no one wants to see like you know like the the the, the true horror of of war and um and i think all all, all is quiet on the western front is a, a good example of that as well and i think this movie does a really good job at showing you um the true insanity and and the true like disorganization of what was really going on during that time and uh you know paints paints war in a in a more realistic light where there is you know there is chaos and there is just you know just complete chaos going on everywhere you know yeah you know and also just more like an emotionally realistic portrayal because no one even if you win quote unquote win you know there's no real winners like people are completely shattered by these experiences you know right um yeah so uh this is based on a novella uh called uh heart of darkness by joseph conrad and not really based on it. This is not an adaptation. It's more of a uh, spiritual connection to the film. Uh, sure. you know, this isn't telling the story that Conrad told in his story, but there's definitely elements that are similar. Um, you know, you're going up the river. Uh, there, there's a, the character of Marlowe, who is the stand-in for Willard. And there's Colonel, uh, well, Kurtz, the character of Kurtz. And it has to do with ivory trading. And he goes up the river. There's cruelty to, uh, you know, the locals and that sort of thing. But that's kind of where the similarities end in between the original text and the, the filmic adaption adaptation or, you know, inspiration, you know, it's more of an inspiring text for this movie. That's how I would say it too. Yeah. I would say this film is, is loosely inspired by the events that took place in that book, but um, yeah, it it definitely takes its own, it has its own story to tell. Yeah. Uh, So the movie initially was released in 1979 and then in 2001, a redux version, an expanded version of this film would had like 49 extra minutes was released. And uh, so do you have any thoughts? Like what's your preferred version of this, preferred cut of this movie? I think the theatrical version is the best cut. Um, and um, I, I say that just because uh, I think that's, that's the, that's the, like the intended like film that you're supposed to see. And, and I, I think it's, I think it's, almost completely flawless uh, in my opinion but being a movie fan i always like stuff like you know director commentary and make director's cuts and and so if you if you have seen this film and you've never seen the redux i do recommend watching the redux version because there's um there's scenes in that in that uh 
movie um, that don't really I wouldn't say it, it adds or or takes away from the, the actual story, but it gives you just a little bit more footage that wasn't available in the theatrical version. That's kind of cool, yeah. especially if you know some of the especially if you know some of the facts behind it and all. So um, as we get into like talking about this movie, um, one of the one of the I mean, the opening scene um, for those who have seen the movie is a scene of, of Martin Sheen's character, Willard, where he's in a he's in a, a hotel in Saigon and he's just drinking and he's sort of going insane uh, in this hotel room. And in the redux version of this, you see the original scene where Martin Sheen was actually drunk and was actually going insane and like um it's not in camera but like it's off camera he's 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 yelling at francis for Coppola to keep rolling and keep rolling and he like punches his mirror and he cuts his thumb up and he's really he really is bleeding in the scene and stuff and and you get you get you get little things like that that you don't get in like the full theatrical version so it's cool if you have if you've already seen the movie to go back and watch these um extra scenes and kind of compare it to the real film and and to know like where these actors were in their head at that time it's it's yeah. really cool in my opinion yeah, yeah I, I agree i think the uh theatrical release from 79 is the way to go and that and that's over two hours long i mean that's like yeah, uh, yeah. You know, that's a commitment a time commitment and the redux is uh, almost an hour longer so you're, you're looking at three plus hours it's three, it's three and a half it's three and a half for the redux and i think it's two and a half for the theatrical yeah around 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 that yeah, yeah. so and, and i i think that the redux version um the narrative really slows down because of what i i, I actually would say that it changes the story a little bit it changes willard's um like his character a bit there's like distractions that are in the redux version that i think really were benefited by getting cut so that that makes yeah you know that that really keeps everything quote-unquote lean and mean even though the movie's two and a half hours long you know right and that's that's my uh my contention too is i i think that you get the you get the intended story with the theatrical version but again if you're a nerd and you yeah. like want to you want to see some interesting things that you didn't know existed i mean it it should be said that um there was uh 230 hours of recorded footage for this movie Damn. so uh and the movie got reduced to two and a half hours yeah. so there's definitely a lot of footage in this film that like even in the redux is not shown to you you know um and uh so it's cool you know it's it's interesting because i mean it is such an iconic film and it's it was such a it was such a huge endeavor i mean um just so people know like I don't remember what the original budget for this film is, but if you know anything about Hollywood films, like the budgets are huge. And this film went so over budget that Francis Ford Coppola put up another $7 million of his own money to finish the filming of this movie. So it was a huge endeavor, especially at that time. And um, so it is interesting to see some of the other stuff that was filmed and why it was filmed and kind of just, you know, it's it's just a neat thing because it's such a monumental uh, uh, undertaking, you know. What I recommend is, and this is all available, uh, you know, on various uh, services like Prime and and you know Apple Music or Apple uh, TV, you know, movie aspects. There, you can you can also get purchase the um, documentary Hearts of Darkness, and I would I would think a great pairing would be the theatrical cut plus hearts of darkness and that gives you all this background about what was going on 
Martin Sheen, uh, Marlon Brando's lack of preparation, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff yeah, is in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dennis Hopper, like, just going missing for, like, yeah. six months. and it... <laughs> It's like that That story is equally as, equally as interesting as the movie, in my opinion, so. I think so, too. Uh, I, I also, um, and we, we'll touch on this more as we go on, but, like, one of the interesting things about great movies um, is sort of, like, the um the stories that you hear about the the things that happen on set or happen with the actors you know i mean um many people who listen to your your other um podcasts the uh, necromaniacs will, will know that like on the set of the omen there was like a lot of deaths attributed to like the filming of that or like in the filming of uh kubrick shining there was a lot of like people like kind of going crazy and like weird happenings and stuff like that and this movie is like no different, you know, all the actors, well, not all of the actors, but a majority of the actors that were in this film all experienced some sort of like personal insanity, uh, like like just the, this movie was a taxing movie on everybody involved. Uh, even Francis Ford Coppola is like stated saying um, that several times like he well, people around him were saying that he was like threatening to blow his brains out. Because it was just such like a crazy undertaking and like being in the jungle and being like it was just it was almost too much for even these actors who were doing this, you know, like and 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 so like something about something to say about like, you know, suffering for your craft. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. so let's run down the cast. There's a lot of a lot of heavy hitters in this um this movie. So, uh, you know, the main cast, obviously, is Marlon Brando as Colonel Kurtz and Martin Sheen as Captain Willard. And uh, Kurtz is, you know, decorated U.S. Army Special Forces, uh, you know, soldier. Martin Sheen is, uh, this is his third tour in Vietnam. And in the beginning of the movie, we see he's, like, pretty shattered, like, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Essentially, he's an assassin. He goes on all these covert operations, these black ops sort of uh, missions. And uh, another big name. Though he's he has um, a more of a supporting role in the film, but I have to I'm going to mention it with these guys just because of who he is. We have Robert Duvall as uh, Colonel Bill Kilgore of the First yes. Squadron, Ninth Cavalry Regiment, Air Cav. And uh, didn't you uh, stalk uh, Robert Duvall or something like that recently? <laughs> I did, I did. Yeah. So uh, there's a, there's a <laughs> there's a place uh, uh, near where I live called Plains, uh, the Plains, Virginia. And there uh, is like a 300-acre horse ranch there that's owned by Robert Duvall. And, um, yeah, I got the wild hair up my ass that I was just going to, like, go over there and just, you know, just, like, talk to Mr. Duvall. Uh, and uh, I went there. I went to the to ranch, and um, I got I got met by a nice gentleman who told me Mr. Duvall is not um, – he he said that Mr. Duvall is, is, is not currently there, and uh, he asked me politely to leave. Um, so I didn't, uh, I didn't get any further than the, the actual driveway to the ranch, but, um, I, I was, I was, I was blissfully optimistic that I was kind of like, just sit down and just ask a couple of questions. But of course the guy's a celebrity and I didn't want to push it too far or nothing like that, you know? So, um, did I you, didn't, but I was, I did go there though. Yeah. Did you actually <laughs> ask to see him? Like when this guy came around, like, did you actually say, yeah, I, 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 I went there, I, I was like, Hey, I just like uh, I'm a fan of Robert Duvall, and I was wondering if I could like come and like check out the ranch and uh, maybe meet <laughs> Mr. Duvall. And uh, they're like, "Nah, <laughs> get out of here." <laughs> that, that that's so, that's fucking balls, man. I got to be honest, that's a lot of balls, dude. 
Well, I mean, you know, like, you know, it's uh, it's free to ask a question, right? You know, the worst they can say is no. So I figured, like, what what I have to lose? Like, <laughs> so, so, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I, <clears throat> I lost some gas money, but that's about it. You know, it was still it's still worth a shot, you know, and I would have loved to talk to that guy because, I mean, outside of this movie, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of like everything that guy's ever done, like everything from falling down to secondhand lions. Like I, I'm a, an open range and stuff. I'm a huge fan of the ball. So you, you ever see uh, the the Apostle with him? It's one of his later films. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I saw that. Incredible. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the, another group of people we spent a lot of the movie with is the crew of uh, the the PBR street gang. It's a boat. Yep. That uh, Captain Willard uses to go up the river to to get to Kurtz, and we have uh, Albert Hall as Phillips. Mm-hmm. He's the chief of the boat, and um, he was tasked with bringing Willard up the river. Frederick Forrest as as a chef, a tightly wound former New Orleans chef of all things, so, and saucier and saucier, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he specializes in sauces. In sauces. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sam Bottoms as Lance, former pro surfer dude from California, and um, you know he's like a like a gunner gunnery mate, I guess. And then of course. Now, last but not least in this group, we have Lawrence Fishburne, young. Like, like I, I think he, I think he literally was seventeen when he was in this movie. Uh, actually, um, I looked this up, and he was fifteen. Fifteen. He he lied about his age and said that he was seventeen because that's what the uh, what AG needed you to do uh, in order to like be in films. And he lied. He was fourteen when production started, and he was fifteen when filming started. Wow. So he was like a yeah. little kid in this movie. He was a kid, yeah. and he plays uh, Mr. Clean. And uh, and uh, I'll tell you a fun thing. I also found out about Sam Bottoms, which you can definitely see in the film if you've ever been around uh, degenerate people. Like um, Sam Bottoms, was every single one of his scenes either on LSD or on speed. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's like a known fact. I, I read it in interviews. Like he, he 100% was either on LSD or, or on uh, speed in almost every single one of his uh, scenes in that movie. Wow. Um, yeah. So you can kind of get that, like, um, you know, that vibe from him too. Right. You know, he's, he's sort of like doing the Tai Chi all the time. And he's like, you know, he's just sort of, sitting on the edge of the boat he's he seems to be more like the free spirit like on the on the pbr uh, street team boat you know like well he um i mean he's in this in this case he's method acting because the reality is lance the character lance was probably high on lsd throughout his entire tour of duty in vietnam i imagine i imagine yeah yeah and there's and there's a lot of this uh method acting sort of thing going on because again um, like we mentioned a little bit earlier with Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen was absolutely an alcoholic during the filming of this movie, um, and struggling with that and was going through a divorce at the time. And, and so the, his, um, the way that he like eyeballs alcohol in that film, I've seen that look in alcoholics, you know, like, um, there's a specific scene when we'll get to it but i'll just briefly touch on it like when they go to that um that one base where the uso show is getting ready to happen and the guy gives him like slaps him uh slaps martin sheen's character willard in the chest with a a bottle of whiskey and says hey like you know no hard feelings right 
And he kind of like just looks side-eyed, looks at that bottle of whiskey for a second. Like, I've seen that look. That looks a real look, you know. And Dennis Hopper's character is wacky on drugs, and uh, Sam Bottoms is wacky on drugs. <laughs> it's like there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of debauchery on set, like um, which yeah. I think I think adds to the filming, and it's something that you lose. Um, I mean, if you have a good actor, I suppose a good actor can portray like these sorts of things in modern films. But something that I I sort of miss in old Hollywood um, that isn't present today is that there was like a certain amount of danger, you know, like they weren't smoking Morley's back in the day. They're really smoking cigarettes. Oh, by the way, I have to say too, watching this film as a former smoker made me want to smoke cigarettes so fucking bad. I just, I don't know about you. Like, I know you I never smoked, smoked cigarettes, cigarette but like, just every, it just, you know, it's one of those films where like smoking cigarettes looks really cool. And like, I just like, uh, I had like, I actually had anxiety watching everybody smoking cigarettes in this film. It was like fucking, it brought back memories of smoking soft pack Marlboro cigarettes and shit like this. Like, yeah, but yeah, there was definitely a lot of debauchery going on on scene on set uh, with this film. Then we have Dennis Hopper, the uh, you know yeah. the legendary Dennis Hopper, as an unknown, unnamed journalist. When uh, when Willard asks him, he's like, you know, ask him who he, who he is, like who are you? Uh, Dennis Hopper's response is, "Who are you?" Right, right, yeah, yeah, right. I'm American. I'm an American. I'm an American yeah. journalist, photojournalist. That's that's who he is. Um, that's who he is. Yeah. And he, but in some ways, and we talked about this on phone a little bit. And in some ways, not exactly. He's almost like uh, Zadok Allen in Shadow Over Innsmouth, the Lovecraft story, where he's like the Watcher, like kind of uh, not really involved. You know, Kurtz doesn't. He tolerates the American photojournalist, but he's not you know in danger well actually he did threaten to kill him if he took his picture he goes yeah yeah i yeah. took i took his picture and, yeah. and and he said he said i was gonna i'm gonna kill you and he meant it yeah but he's <laughs> not he's not um in any real real danger he's not involved in any of these missions but he's just there as an observer and he kind of acts as uh you know a, a non-active player where he or like a liaison yeah liaison almost. like he kind of yeah. helps move the the narrative along you know and um I yeah, that, I thought I thought that that Shadow of Innsmouth uh, analogy was a good one, just because like old Zadok uh, in in Shadow of Innsmouth, like you know he somehow doesn't they don't they don't turn him into a deep one, they don't kill him, they just sort of let him be because he's like the old drunk, yeah. and so he's like just he's he's not a threat to them, but but there's there's always the question of why because like i mean he's also an old drunk so you could just kill the guy and it wouldn't it wouldn't it would be inconsequential if you did yeah. you know and and it's the same with dennis hopper's character it's like he could have just you know been murdered off immediately yet for whatever reason he's allowed to stay and allowed to document everything you know yeah and uh he makes a statement of uh, oh no you don't talk to kurtz you listen <laughs> you listen <right. laughs> so so that's um that's the main those uh those are the heavy hitters and of course we have the the brass the uh, the guys yep. who are making all of this uh, who are the reason for this mission we have uh, G D Spradlin as Lieutenant General R Corman named after Roger yeah. Corman by the way and uh, he's the one who issues the orders like he develops the orders to have Kurtz terminated Jerry Zeismer who's possibly a CIA person. I'm assuming he's a CIA guy. We never know, but he's dressed differently from yeah. like the enlisted men, right? He's, he's got like civilian. the white shirt and the yeah. black tie. Uh, he's yeah. not military; he's civilian. 
and he is unnamed, and he just kind of lurks in the background, and he has one line, which we'll get to when we get to the opening scene, the uh, the meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A very, very young, fresh-faced Harrison Ford as Colonel Lucas. That's uh, Corman's, uh, you know, sidekick, his, his aide, if you will. And a fun fact for all the movie nerds, um, Francis Ford Coppola uh, originally uh, had George Lucas on board to help with either the funding or the production uh, of this film. And Lucas pulled out, but he still had Ford. Um, so he named Ford's character uh, G. Lucas as sort of like a fuck you to George Lucas. Because he's like, I got your boy. I got Han Solo in my film, and it's just like, it's it's like kind of like a a funny little like you know like diss to George Lucas in this this film that will eventually become an ep- epic film, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. That's why I mentioned two other guys. We got uh, there was um another small role, which goes to Scott Glenn, who's like a pretty well known at least for the from the seventies and eighties uh, character actor. You might sure. know him from Urban Cowboy. Of, uh, of all films <laughs> and he plays Colby who is uh, basically another soldier assigned with the same mission that Willard has but went dis- just disappeared and we'll find out what happened to him later and then yeah. uncredited we have uh, R. Lee Ernie who a lot of some of you might know him from Full Metal Jacket as Sergeant Hartman and right. um, or mail call, mail call on uh, History Channel <laughs> yeah there you go and he's uh, not credited but he appears as a helicopter pilot in this movie and what's great about him is, um, you know, in, in the same sense of Full Metal Jacket, um, you know, the original the original drill instructor for Full, Full Metal Jacket um, was just like a, a Hollywood actor. And Arlie Ermey was actually casted um, as one of the enlisted men in Full Metal Jacket. And when the uh, when the uh, drill instructor was like walking up and down the lines, like the, the, and insulting everybody, you know, um, in that famous scene where he's, you know, let me hear you, let me hear your war cry, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Arby Ermey was laughing like, during the filming of that. And Stanley Kubrick, uh, as you know, is like not one for like actors getting out of line. And he's like, why the fuck are you laughing right now? And he's like, this guy is, is a joke. He's like, I, and he, and he's like, oh, you think you can do better? And then, are the army like pulls off like the the drill instructor performance that we know um from you know the famous full metal jacket right so he was actually a real enlisted man and like he actually had seen combat and stuff like that so um getting him in that movie even though it's like just like he's just a helicopter pilot and he doesn't really have much uh much to do with the actual story of the film like when you listen to him talk in in those scenes and stuff like that he's He's actually speaking of an experience, which is kind of cool, in, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Also, like in Full Metal Jacket, he's a little bit too old to be an enlisted man, man. That dude's like probably like forty years old at that point, and everyone else <laughs> yeah, is like yeah, yeah. 18, 19 year old kids. So, you know, like I said, he needed a yeah. body, you know. But uh, I mean, they needed def- a body. Yeah, they, he probably wasn't going to be like a main character, like Gomer Pyle or something like that. But like you know, that he was just like, a guy in line. But he was laughing. And Kubrick, it's a famous, it's a famous like moment. Like Kubrick's like, "Why the fuck are you laughing right now?" And he's like, "Cause this guy's a pussy." <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like you know, a drill instructor would never say the things that this guy is saying, and uh, so he got he got recasted as as the the actual drill instructor in that film, and uh, that's just a testament to like you know, uh, Arlie Ehrman. I love that man. I love him in Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. I think he's the best character in the remakes of those films. 
he's just so sadistic and evil. And he, he pulls it off well. So the movie has the best intro ever. You know, this we got the end by the doors. You know, we have this these beautifully shot scenes of helicopters dropping napalm on this beautiful jungle <laughs> in the in the night, you know, and it's you know, my recollection of this and watching it in a movie theater was was pretty breathtaking, you know, with this gigantic screen and seeing all this carnage, you know, this immolation of this uh beautiful rainforest, you know, with, with the doors playing in the background. And at the time, yeah. I didn't even know who the doors were. It's like I, you know, I was maybe listening to like Foreigner and, you know, Kansas and stuff like that when I was a kid, you know, the the soundtrack to Greece or something was really what I was, you know, rocking at, at that age. And uh, then I heard this really scary music and it was unsettling. And the beginning of that film goes down and is the greatest introduction to any movie I've ever seen, you know. Absolutely. And I don't think you could have picked a, a better song than The End by The Doors. I think it fits... It fits this film, and it, it permeates throughout the film as well. You know, it's it's in the beginning, and it's also in the end of the film, and, like, it just works so well with the overall feeling of this movie. Like, it, it really does. It really does. So we find Captain Willard between missions. He's, you know, just in his room. The wall's closing in, peering out the window at Saigon, waiting for another mission. And, uh, you know, we, we get to know a lot about his character. You know, he describes uh, being home and always thinking about being back in, out there. And then when he's out there, he's, all he can think about is being home. And then when he went home, there was nothing. And his wife, they divorce. There's a nice little moment where he's looking at a picture of his wife and he just burns their picture with a cigarette. And, and you just realize this guy has completely ended one the the illusion of civilization he knows that doesn't exist anymore and he exists in this like netherworld of violence and brutality and nihilism you know there's a good line in that scene too that like really sort of paints like the psyche of lord's character and it's when he says like every day i'm in here i'm getting softer every day charlie's out in the woods getting stronger you know uh he really he really feels that like he's wasting his time when he's not being in the field and doing like military operations. Yeah. And there's the famous scene that you touched, touched on earlier where, um, you, you know, I imagine Willard had a lot of nights like this where he's just by himself in this room, drinking hard liquor and getting fucking obliterated, annihilated. annihilated. Yeah, annihilated. And just <laughs> as a quick aside, which you touched on earlier, uh, you know, Martin Sheen was an alcoholic. He was going through a divorce um, in in uh, he's 36 years old, and in Hearts of Darkness, you learn that during the filming he had a, he had a heart attack. Uh, yeah, yeah, he does. So he's like a, the the character of Martin Sheen, the actor Martin Sheen, the man, kind of mirrors <laughs> Captain Willard as the character. You know, he's pretty much in this really down part of his life. You know, very. It was said. It was said in some interviews I read as well about this film that, uh, much like the Heath Ledger character as the Joker, uh, some of Martin Sheen's closest uh, like um, co-actors and stuff like that were actually becoming concerned with Martin Sheen because they felt that he was becoming Willard. Yeah, uh, you know, none of everything was real. He was drunk. The blood's real. The mirror is not a gag mirror. He punches this mirror. He's got blood all over his hands. And uh, passes out and then wakes up with these two MPs uh, looking to collect him 
and uh, and and bring him to Comsac. Now, the funny thing was when they show up in his room, he's naked and covered in blood, mm-hmm. and the sheets are blood all over him. And these two guys are like, uh, "Captain, Will, how, are, how are you, sir? How are you, are you sir? Are you doing okay?" <laughs> he goes, "What do you think?" He goes, "Like, well, how do I look?" Or something like that, right? He's like, "How do I look?" <laughs> he's like, "Hey, hey, buddy, can you close the door?" <laughs> and um. And uh, when when they tell him they have to escort him to the airfield, he's like, "What are the charges?" <laughs> right. That's his first his first thing is he thinks he fucked and did something wrong, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there there's no charges, sir. Like you've been requested. <laughs> he's like, uh, and then they throw his ass in this shower, like you know, give him like that cold bath, you know, so he can fucking sober up real quick. Yeah. But, yes. like, uh, so Willard gets cleaned up, and they bring him. And during this, there's the voiceover where he was talking about, I wanted a mission, and for my sins, they gave me one. And that, that's actually right. right before the MPs come to get him. And that sets the, sets the table for this, uh, this, this little drama we have. And he also mentions that I was going to the worst place in the world, and I didn't even know it yet. Right. Yeah. It kind of you know, gives you an idea of what's in store for him. Uh, so this is like where the whole um, mission is, is, is being... <laughs> presented to Willard, and this is where we have the you know the, the the brass. We got the CIA guy, the unnamed CIA person. We got uh, you know, General Corman, and we got Colonel. And Lewis. we got Lucas. Yeah. yeah, and they paint a picture of Colonel Kurtz as being this uh, one of the most outstanding soldiers, officers the country has ever produced. And then they add the caveat of he joined the special forces. And his methods became unsound. So this is an important part of the, the narrative is because essentially because of his he's being charged with murder for killing an, an official at uh, or uh, I think uh, some sort of uh, official in this village that the VC, the VC village where um, he wasn't ordered to do it. He just did it on his own. So they're charging him with murder. Now, I maintain that's similar to uh, Dante's Inferno. <laughs> this this movie is an infernal comedy uh, in a lot of ways because you're in war and they're sending another soldier out to kill someone they've accused of with murder. And I I actually had the same exact thought, and I had the thought I didn't have that thought in that scene. <clears throat> I had the thought when they're when they're on the boat and they're going up the river and he's reading like the dossiers, uh, the lesser letters that he sent to his wife. Yeah. Um, that Kurtz has sent to his wife, and he says they've accused me of murder of six people, and like I thought the same thing. I'm like, well, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Like, isn't all war just murder? But like, there's like there's there's you know the justified murder and then there's unjustified murder somehow. You know, like. You know, I, I I found it also comedic in in a in a dark in a dark way. Yeah, and uh, yeah, this is where uh, where where Cor- Corman gives this uh, little little speech where he talks about there's a conflict in every human heart between good and evil. Sometimes the dark side overcomes what Lincoln calls better angels of our nature. Every man mm-hmm. has a breaking point, and obviously Walt Kurtz has reached his. Now, the fact that he called him Walt Kurtz implies that Corman probably knows Kurtz personally. Like, he right. probably knows this man as a friend. You know, they're, they're both, like, high-ranking, high-level, elite, you know, military guys. Yet, he's ordering his murder. 
or his assassination, actually. You know, his, his, what I call it what you will. He's, he want, he's sending Willard up there to kill him. And right. I found it interesting that he doesn't actually give the order. You know, this is like some, some mobster shit right here where he kind of lays out the background of what's going on. But Lucas is the one who actually gives him the, the order to go up there and assassinate Kurtz. And there's a very interesting thing in this scene that I, I, I still can't really figure out why. But um, when, when Harrison Ford's character, uh, uh, Lucas, um, tells Willard what he has to do, um, he gets like choked up yeah, yeah. in that moment. And, um, and I'm not sure what that's about. Cause I, I, you know, and maybe it's because like you're asking an American to kill another American. I, I guess it's like the, that's probably the, the, the most like sane, like, um, you know, um, conclusion to come to, but I, I, am that scene, that scene stuck with me, uh, when watching this. Cause I, I was like kind of curious why he got choked up in that moment. If the guy's a lunatic, and yes, he's a decorated uh, soldier, but like he's a lunatic, right? Wouldn't you be like a little bit more, you know, it, there's just something weird about that scene and not, not, not bad weird, but like just there's a, a thing about that that I haven't, I haven't still kind of made up my mind about why well, I, that, I, that I, scene happens. I think it's like one of the most interesting scenes in the movie, really, because there's a lot of stuff going on there. And I think that the reality is like you think about the gravity of what they're asking him to do. Like they're, they're right. I mean, I. I'm no military guy, you know, I've never been in war, but I don't imagine that it's common to have your own guys killed. You know what I mean? Sure. Especially someone who they may actually have. Well, it's pretty clear that Corman knows him personally. Right. Lucas may know him by reputation. You know, he's like a high performing elite officer, you know, so he's a guy who they probably really looked up to at some point, you know, and prior. And uh, yeah, it's, it's uneasy. Like Lucas is like, you know, he's coughing and, you know, very nervous when he's giving the order for, and they, and they say it in like technical jargon, you know, determine, right, right. determine his command, you know, and even Willard has this like kind of awestruck look on his face and he's like, terminate Kurtz. And that's when our CIA ghoul, the guy who's like lurking in the background with his, fucking tie and white shirt on the civilian steps up with his only line in the movie terminate with extreme prejudice right yeah that scene is so heavy man and also it's heavy. and and there's another thing in that scene that like uh, kind of goes under notice uh unnoticed but like in the beginning of that encounter when when willard first walks into the room um he's offered a cigarette and he says no yeah, and then after the CIA guy goes ex- exterminate with extreme prejudice, he offers him a cigarette and he takes it. You know, and yeah. it's a it's a it's a subtle thing, yep. but it's it actually I think it speaks volumes because like he now he's you know this this unbreakable Willard is kind of stressed, right? Sure. So now he needs the cigarette, right? <laughs> like, yeah. You know. Um, also the, the, this is once again, like a, uh, part of the divine comedy aspect of this thing is he gets invited into this, uh, you know, office, probably like a trailer or something like that, you know, that the general occupies and that, you know, there's gentle music playing, like pleasant music is playing. He invites him to sit down for this, uh, nice meal. Um, all the, the the shrimp, is it the shrimp thing? No, no. What I was saying, just the idea that they're in, they're in Saigon somewhere or whatever. 
in in a war zone and they're making everything this there's this idea of civility that's portrayed throughout the film that we're having roast beef and shrimp you know right while i'm gonna i'm about to order you to kill one of our own guys well, there's a funny, there's a funny, there's a funny line in that scene too, where he goes, uh, "I don't know how you feel about shrimp, but if you eat one of these, like, you'll never have to prove your loyalty to me ever again." Yeah, your bravery. Yeah. <laughs> your bravery. Yeah, your bravery to me ever again. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's a comedic line. I mean, it's like set in like a, a very somber, like you know, set, setting, you know. But it's a that's a funny line, yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, this movie kind of bar, you know, goes back to um, the original comedies. You know, of like, you know, back to like Roman times, maybe where a comedy isn't necessarily side splitting laughter, but it's more like ir- the use of irony. And I think that, yeah, that's why I like this film, even though it's like a really bleak, intense, heavy movie, it, to me is like the original idea of what a comedy is, where you're there's like a ironic, absurd situation that you're, you're involved in, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, I think some of the best comedy is dark. And it and it touches on irony. I think irony is like the best form of comedy because it it juxtaposes like the sane with the insane, yeah. you know. Uh, so then, uh, you know, we Willard gets uh, inserted with his crew on a PBR street gang, and they begin their their uh, dr- travel up the up the river. And once again, the civility and comforts of home come into play when we we they run into um to uh kilgore you know right. and his uh air cav people and uh you know kilgore you know he's like this uh super alpha male sort of guy you know he's an uber he's an ubermensch you know yeah ubermensch <laughs> he totally understands that he's not he's going to come through this entire war without a scratch on him and he's like you know has this air of invincibility about him and uh and there's like another iconic scene where they with the flight of the valkyries and they attach they attack the uh the vietnam vietnamese village you know and they go in there and they clean house and they have to aid in the the rip the boat being brought up up river and at the end of that operation everyone's outside and they're uh you know having steaks and drinking beer Kilgore's strumming a guitar actually no that happens before this actually yeah sorry about that yeah yeah that happens before yeah that happens before yeah Yeah. but there's this whole sense of like this and I'm gonna revisit this idea but um, trying to bring the the civilization with you into chaos right and when you bring civilization with you into chaos and try to like 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 place this in a completely chaotic situation that it always fails i guess that's the point i'm trying to make by mentioning that sure well there's an in, there's a a thing that's also important like in those in those two segments um that um kilgore uh and i, I thought this was kind of interesting too and i don't know what your take is on it but kilgore for whatever reason sort of takes a liking to uh lance Oh, it's because they're, they're all uh, surfers, man. That's the thing. <laughs> you are, right, yeah, the, sur- the surfing thing. But it's even more so than that. Like, I, I almost saw, like, some more, like, you know, parental, like, you know, fatherly, like, kind of admiration towards Lance from Kilgore. Because, like, amongst all the men that were there, like, you know, he's sort of, like, singling out Lance and, like, asking him about, like, the breaks in the waves and, like, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And he, he seems to have, like, a certain – ad- I mean, again, it is, it is 100% because of the surfing aspect, but – that I saw like 
um, in his character that he sort of like kind of, you know, looked looked on Lance fondly. And uh, you can see that like in, in several scenes. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Like in that the one scene you were talking about when they're eating steaks um, and they're like sitting around the campfire and he's talking about like the, the six foot uh, six foot breaks that they they get like at this one beach. Um, you know, Kilgore, like immediately, like his eyes light up and like, he wants to go surf. Right. And, and so they like, we attack at dawn, you know, and they go there, they literally go there, like, I mean, to kill the enemy, but also like, cause they want to go fucking surf. Right. And like, there's when they land on that village and, you know, like you were saying, like, you know, Kilgore has like this invincibility about him. Like he's just standing up the whole time and he's like, Look at those breaks. Look how they were going to the left and look how that one goes to the right. Like you could have two men out there fucking surfing the same time, going two different directions, right? And meanwhile, like there's like bullets flying and bombs blowing up. And Lance's character is like he's freaking out. Like he's he's like down in the in the sand of the beach, right? Yeah. And like Kilgore just like wants him to like, you know, just look and like, you know, tell him like, you know, he's so unfazed by all this war. And I think I think Kilgore's character is a very important character as well in this whole storyline, albeit that he's only in like, you know, maybe 10 minutes of the entire film, maybe 15 minutes of the entire film. But, um, you know, this, as we go on this, like uh, telling of this story, you know, we're, we're experiencing different people at different levels of insanity. And I think Kilgore is, I think Kilgore is actually insane too, but he's not like, he's not like crazy in the sense that like he is, um, you know, he's lost his mind in in the way that we would think people would lose their mind. He's like, he's sort of just like unfazed by war. Like he's been maybe inundated with it for so long that like he's not like, you know, there's the famous line, you know, he calls him there. So on this scene that we're talking about, they get to the beach and there's all kind of carnage going on. There's a helicopter that lands and it like tries to pick up some injured soldiers and a woman uh, runs out and throws a grenade in the helicopter and blows the helicopter up. And there's just carnage all around. And meanwhile, like Kilgore's character is just fascinated about the waves. Like he doesn't even care about like all this carnage that's going on. And he finally calls in an airstrike and he delivers like one of the best lines in this film. And it's, uh, I love the smell of napalm in the morning because these, uh, these planes come through and they napalm like the whole jungle. And then, he talks about an experience that he had uh, in his previous life um, at a different battle and about how when he um, they used napalm in another uh, circumstance and he sat there and he smelled it and he goes, that smell, that gasoline, he goes, smells like victory, you know? And it's just like, he, this guy is just like, he is, He's hardened by war to this to the point where he's not really human anymore, and in a way that makes him crazy, but not the crazy that we'll see later on in the film. But he is still a crazy character in a way. Well, you as know? you as you progress through the movie, you see like various stages of what is what by Kurtz's reckoning is required to win a situation like this. You know what I mean? And that's, that's why I think your analogy of the divine comedy is why this is, yeah. is, is good because like, that would be like the, that would be the, the first level of hell or the second level of hell, right. Is Kilgore. Right. Yeah. And as you descend further, you get, you get further and further into it. Right. You know? 
But uh, I love Kilgore's character. Uh, I think he's got some great lines. And he has this one great line, too, that I really like, where he, um, it's like the last, it's the last line that he has in the movie. And he just looks at Martin Sheen's character, or Lance. It's one of one of the two, Lance or Martin Sheen. And he just goes, it, it seems like he's actually going to say more, but he doesn't. He just looks at them and he goes, don't worry, one of, the, one, of the, one of these days this war will be over. And then he pauses, like he's going to say something else. And then he just gets up and walks away, right? And in that moment, I felt like it's almost like that was actually like a sad statement because like in a way he didn't want the war to be over. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it, you know, and and, yeah. and that speaks to a lot of different things, man. You know, like I don't, like I said, I've never been in a war, but I've been around people who've been in a war, and sure, life is different when you come home from something like that, you know. Yeah, and, and I think that yeah, well, yeah how are you going to go back to normal life after like yeah. surfing, surfing in like you know like the Vietnam like ocean while there's bombs going off and stuff like there's yeah, nothing well, that can compare to that kind of like exhilaration, you know, uh, ordering ordering airstrikes, you know, <laughs> seeing people, you know, and the violence too, man. Like you, and maybe for the first time ever, you see dead kids, like you see kids like blown up and stuff in a lot of these scenes. Like that's like well, this is one of the first films that is. um doesn't paint combat in a glorious way you know what i mean like you see like people with their legs missing and you see dead kids dead children you know and fuck-ups and things being mishandled and stuff like that too you know and for the horror horror fans um not that this is like something to glorify but it is something that's not been done very often um a lot of the dead people in this movie are actually real dead people really they uh yes um holy shit i didn't even know that they went they went to a morgue especially like when we get when we get to like the kurt scene towards the end of this conversation um a lot of those hanging bodies and stuff were actually real dead bodies that they got from a morgue wow yeah damn okay that's pretty heavy you know i don't think i don't think that's been done since like cannibal holocaust or i don't know maybe they've done in other films but i only know of cannibal holocaust outside of this movie where they actually did something like that wow yeah uh you know, another key scene, there, there's a couple of things that uh, happen with whenever whenever they show this superposition of civilization over the wildness and the chaos, it always ends in chaos. Like even with one of the one of the iconic scenes is when they have the Playboy bunnies and the USO show and right. uh, they're trying to entertain the, the troops, you know, and these dudes just lose their mind and basically a riot happens and they hustle these ladies out on a helicopter. And, you know, there's a voiceover with Martin Sheen's character with Willard, and he's saying, you know, you know Charlie doesn't get any R&R. Like, he's out and in, in hunkered in the jungle, you know, with a right, good right. R&R for Charlie is a bowl of rice. It's cold rice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that will come, we'll, we'll revisit that stuff later on. We talk about Kurtz, Kurtz's philosophy on this whole thing. And another nerdy fact, uh, in that scene, um, there's a lot of barrels um, that are marked with a, a name that's called Dow Chemicals. And um, that's a nod to the actual Dow Chemical Company that was responsible for the pesticide that they tried to use to, like, kill the jungle, um, uh, which is uh, aptly named Agent Orange. And so you'll see in that scene, you'll see a lot of guys, like, you know, leaning on barrels and these barrels, like, everywhere. And they're, like, they're black with, like, the white lettering of Dow Chemicals on it. And that's actually... um, it was just a little, again, like a little nod to like the real horrors of Vietnam and stuff like that in that scene. In uh, there's a scene where 
Kurt, Kurt's, uh, Kurt's is, uh, you know, it's like this magnet drawing Willard down up, up the river to him. Okay. And mm-hmm. there's a singular purpose. Willard is clearly different than the guys on PBR Street Gang. You know, he is someone who is perfectly equipped for violence, war, doing the, getting the mission done, and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's pretty clear that maybe with the exception of Phillips, you know, who's a, a you know appears to be a good officer, he runs the ship in like a very and a bit know, old, and a bit older too. Yeah, he's a little bit older. He's been around, but no one else on that boat is is really equipped for being in war. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> like none of those guys. No, Mister there's, there's a line in the movie that says like, you know, I I can't imagine any of these like uh, men being older than seventeen, but and all of them just have admirations of going home. Yeah, you know. I, and there's a scene where we truly understand the difference between Willard and the rest of the crew is when there's a, a fishing boat on the river and Phillips is like, we have to check this out, you know, and will, you know, I mean, sorry, uh, Phillips says we have to check this out. And Willard's like, no, no, my, my mission takes uh, precedence over anything. It's a priority to get me up, up river. And he's like, well, this is my boat. So they stop, they check out this fishing boat. They send chef on board and he's like, you know, it's just mangoes, man. You know, there's nothing here. Got some rice. And this young girl goes to something that's hidden. And then they just light the entire boat up, which was crazy if you think about it, because Chef is right in the line of fire. And they basically light yeah, this yeah, entire, yeah. just fucking destroy these people, right? It turns out there's just a dog. And one of the, uh, the this woman is, is injured, not dead. And they're like, oh, check her out. We have to bring her on the, on board. And then Willard just kills her, shoots her. Right. And it's like, I told you not to stop. And right. It's like, that's like, we, we got to do this thing, man. I don't care about your protocol or what your rules are. We have to go from point A to point B. I have to get to Kurtz and I have my mission. I have to complete And again, that, that kind of speaks to these, the, it kind of speaks to like these more hardened people like Kugor as well, where like there seems, there's like a level of calm in the people like uh, Willard and and Kilgore and even Kurtz, you know, there's like a level of calm, even though like they're capable of doing like such horrible things, you know, whereas the other, everyone else, you know, especially these young kids, you know, that are on this boat are kind of just, they're just kind of freaking out, you know, like a, they're on, they're, they're on edge constantly, you know, like that scene you were saying, like when, when chef goes on the boat, like he's, he's actively angry at Phillips because you can tell in that moment, like he's had enough of this. He's like, what are they fucking doing? I'm standing here. I'm looking, they got rice, they got mangoes, they got this, you know? And Phil's like, no, get on the boat and fucking search. And he's like, and he's, he's actively like talking back to his superior, you know, cause you can just tell he's just had like enough of this. You know, he's, 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 he's reaching his breaking point, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, and I think, is that, is that, is that, before or after the tiger scene? I think it's after the tiger scene. Yeah, right? yeah. The tiger scene's cool, but it's kind of like it's just like dressing in the movie, if you ask me, really. Well, no, but I think I think that I think that um, kind of like sets the precedence for like chefs un, 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 unwinding, you know, because you know he's like he he starts to, he starts to go insane in that moment, you know, when they're out there looking for mangoes, and then like the tiger jumps out and he freaks out and he's like, I should never leave the boat, I should never leave the boat, and like you know, and like. He's sort of like losing his mind. I didn't sign up for this shit. I didn't sign up for this shit, you know? And then we see the scene that you were just talking about and he has to go, he has to be the one that goes in the boat. So he's already kind of unraveling in that moment, you know? 
And uh, again, this movie, in my opinion, is like, you know, like different different stages of the levels of insanity that people go through, like while being in such a high, high octane, you know, uh, terrible like situation like war, you know. Well, then we get to the Dulong Bridge, which is like the beginning, the entryway into hell, basically. And, uh, you know, this scene always reminded me of like uh, Dante's Inferno when they're, they're riding down the river and they see these people just, you know, crashed helicopter and they're floating in the river and just like, you know, asking for help. And, you know, you're going to get what's coming to you. And then there's some dude appears out of nowhere and he's like, I got mail for Captain Kurt, Captain Willard or whatever, you know, and it's like, <laughs> right. Uh, it's like now nah, I get the get the hell out of here, you know, and and it's that's when you see that there's complete chaos and madness. Like they roll up, there's a bridge, you know, and I think it's Phillips who's like, "We're not going anywhere. Why don't we just get the hell out of here?" It's like they there's all this is madness. They keep blowing that bridge up. We keep rebuilding it on and on and on forever into eternity, you know, and uh, and he's like, "I have to do. I got to do what I got to do." You know, and, and there's an interesting thing in that scene too that like also paints like the chaos of the Vietnam War is when like Willard gets off the boat and like is talking to like those guys and they're like he's like who's your commanding officer and the one guy's like aren't you you know like they just don't know what the hell is going on they're just <clears throat> firing out into the jungle and you know they're just completely just sort of like that's yeah that's like that's like that that's sort of like the crossing the veil moment you know when you yeah. see like the soldiers that are deeper, the soldiers that are deeper in the jungle, the American soldiers, they're all, they're all whacked. They're all whacked out of their fucking mind, you know, and they don't know what the hell's going on. And they're like, they're shooting in the jungle and it's like, can't you hear him? I can hear him fucking screaming, you know? And like, they're just all, all those boys are like just out of their fucking mind, you know, at that point. And then, you know, that, then Willard fucking gets back on the boat. He's like, yeah, there's, there's nothing here. You know, yeah. he's like says a line like that. He's like, there's nothing here, you know, and that that line's also telling too. like when I think when he says there's nothing here, it's like it's not like there's nothing here as far as information. There's also like nothing here in the sense of like like what what would have represented like uh, human civility. Yeah. You know, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So that you know, we go deeper into the into the the mission here and. um you know, basically, everyone dies on the boat except for uh, you know Willard finishes his mission and uh, and Lance is the guy who accompanies him out of this whole thing. So I mean, if, right. if anyone's like looking for a spoiler-free episode on like uh, a movie that's like over forty years old, you're not going to find. Yeah, you should have watched the yeah. movie already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the most interesting part of the film is the ending, where we come up. Willard finally comes up to Kurtz and he's holed up in this like ancient temple, this abandoned temple, which is like the perfect place for this guy who has um, basically set himself up as a god to these people, you know, issuing out all of his philosophies. And uh, we also see in the crowd that Colby, the guy who went missing, who had the original mission, is part of his uh, his cult of of warriors. And uh, yeah. And um, when Kurtz and Willard confront each other. Kurtz is like enveloped in these shadows and it's really cool the way he's just like this shape, you know, but there's a reason for that, isn't there? (laughs) So, yeah. So Coppola, um, so a a little, like little, uh, like callback, um, to when Willard is like going through, um, general Kurtz's files. Well, like, you know, um, that he's been given by the brass, and um, there's a picture um, 
of of Marlon Brando like uh, as an enlisted man and that's from um that's from a movie called like something through the golden eye I can't remember what the, the actual film is called um uh port- I think it's like portraits uh, through a golden eye something along these lines and um uh oh sorry it's uh it's reflections reflections of a golden eye and uh, so all these military like all these military stills that are used in this in this movie apocalypse now are taken from from that that film oh okay um that. That, that marlon brando filmed back in you know whenever he filmed that back in the 60s early 60s i'm, I'm guessing and um and anyway uh francis Ford coppola like hadn't seen marlon brando for a long time no one had seen marlon brando if, if anyone listening knows like how marlon brando was after like uh shooting like the godfather and stuff like that he became quite a recluse and and didn't really like want to do anything with hollywood anymore and he and he became quite overweight and um so Marlon brando who is supposed to be like this you know decorated war veteran um larger than life sort of guy uh shows up on set fat and uh coppola is pissed by this and so coppola's uh but coppola still wants him in the film so his his approach to this is to uh sort of just like drape him in black clothing and not really film him in any kind of like direct light but in this um there is a genius that i don't think either i don't think marvin brando uh knew that this was going to happen i don't think coppola knew this was going to happen either but by doing this by having to like overcome this obstacle um i think you create like the the, the best villain scenes out of almost any movie ever because you never really see you know uh general kurtz like fully you know uh set, uh aside from like when he cuts off chef's head you see him for a second but other than that he's always kind of shrouded you know in this like cloak of darkness and and i think that really lends to like sort of the mystery around marlon brando's character in this film yeah and, and furthermore he didn't even read the script nor did he read the uh was it i think 85 pages oh, or 90 page uh heart of darkness novella yeah so he yeah. had literally no idea what the movie was about probably and um, many, most, a, a fair, lar- fairly large amount of his lines are improvised, like in, in, in these scenes. Yeah, one of, I think uh, you and I both like this line, um, when uh, when they first had their first encounter and he goes, uh, you know, what are you, an assassin? And Martin Sheen's character, Willard, says, no, I'm a soldier. And he goes, you're neither. He goes, you're an errand boy uh, working for a glo- grocery clerk uh, going to collect the bill. And um, that line was actually improvised by Brando uh, in the in the shooting of that of that scene, which I think is a fucking amazing line, though, you know, which is a, t- a testament to, you know, say what you want to say about Marlon Brando. But he's a he's a pedigree actor. You know, he's been doing films for a very, very long time. So and I think that was actually a, a glorious line in that film. Yeah, it's I'm, great. Glad they, I'm glad they kept it in there, too. There's also a scene which I suspect was improvised where it's during uh, when Kurtz and Willard are talking where he's like, where are you from, uh, Captain Willard? Oh, oh, the Ohio River thing? He's like, yeah, he's like, how f- yeah. he's like Toledo, Ohio. He's like, how far from the river are you? And there's like a long pause. And he's like, about 200 miles, sir. And then he goes into this whole thing about gardenias and, you know, plants and flowers and all this stuff. And it's just like... So brilliant! It sounds like that sounds like a Marlon Brando improvised line. To oh me my god, well. man! It's yeah. just so incredible. I think, and 
I mean, not if you're the director. You know, obviously Coppola was probably losing his mind during these moments. But, he probably was. Yeah, yeah. But for for the the film, you know, the viewer, it's like it just adds such a layer of depth. You know, and 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 even that, even this this depth is an illusion because this guy is like make, you know, improvising all this stuff. He doesn't even really understand the character, honestly. But it's right. just Marlon Brando adding his layer of insanity to this like insane film, really. Yeah, that's what I love about it too, is because I I feel like a real crazy person would actually sort of gravitate towards like those sort of um, strange details yeah. that maybe you and I wouldn't. You know, if we're like telling a story, like you know, we wouldn't expound on like the gardenias on like the the bank of this island that's like down that you know. Which may yeah, or not even like, exist. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it might not even exist, right? You know, you don't really know. And I think that's, a, again, like a, a genius on on Marlon Brando's ability to be unprepared for a role, but still, like, you know, come up, come, come show up and, and deliver. Like, you know, I mean, say what you want to say about the preparation that he, he did, which obviously... Um, was less than adequate compared to like what everyone else in this film like sacrificed in order to be in this film, but he still delivered like an A plus like performance, yeah. like, you know, and, and um, yeah, I mean, that's what you, you know, that's what you get from an actor like that, you know, someone who's got the, like the, you know, the discography that he has, you know, he's going to be able to like to pull some, some stuff out of his ass like that, you know, and I'm glad he did. Cause it's, it makes the, the character of Kurt's, all the more likable and detestable at the same time. And maybe that's what you need to do with Brando or you needed to do back then is not have him read the script and have him just show up and you just kind of give him a sketch of what the scene is about. Because like true, like when guys are really into improv, you know, there's like this misunderstanding that, oh, improv, you just make everything up. It's like, no, well, they, they have a setting that they understand. And the idea is that you're supposed to understand the setting and the character to the extent where you can, formulate your own situations and your own dialogue you know and that's really right. the, the the nature of improvisation but brando probably had still his entire life probably had no idea what the movie was about you know what i mean no and i think but i think what you're saying is is absolutely true because i think there's two types of improv and there's like the loose improv that what you're speaking uh to at this moment where like i just need to know like the general gist of like what's going on and then i will sort of develop the character amidst like these like you know like keynotes but then you have someone like um um uh, uh what can i think of his fucking name right now uh last of the Mohicans guy uh daniel day lewis oh, like, yeah. the daniel day lewis guy who like fully immerses himself in a character and can't be bothered to be talk spoken to unless you're speaking to the character that he's playing you know, and like doesn't want to be like surrounded by anything that would take away from like that immersion that he's trying to like portray in whatever film he's trying to portray, you know, um, both of which are are very, um, in my opinion, like they're, they're very um, successful uh, methods at like creating a believable character. Yeah. You know, it, I think with too much direction and too from a director, um, perhaps you can lose sort of like the, you know, I, I don't know that if Marlon Brando had stuck to the script and had like read all the books and like, and, and had like, you know, like followed everything point by point by point, 
the character would be as effective as it is um, with the looseness that Martin Brando sort of like took. Uh, we'll never know, but in my opinion, I think his his, his portrayal of Kurtz is is unmatched. I think it's it's perfect. I really do. Also, uh, can, you know, kudos to uh, Martin Sheen for rolling with it too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. <laughs> you know, that scene especially, like he's like, "Where? Who even knows if, if, um, if, if the character of Willard was supposed to be from Toledo? Like, who knows? You know? Yeah, yeah, we don't know, right? That might have just been something that Marlon Brando did, and then it just became canon after the fact. And and FYI, Toledo, Ohio, is located on a river, but it's not the Ohio River. So he was, he probably had been there and he probably was like remembering like sparse facts about that area and like just improvising that like whole thing. Cause yeah, he, yeah. he asked him the Ohio river when he asked him how far, how many miles from the river. Are right, there? right. It's 200. Right. And, yeah. and Toledo <laughs> is on a fucking river. It's just uh, it's a different river though than the Ohio river. Isn't that crazy? It's yeah, it is. It is crazy. And I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love it. <laughs> oh my God. It's just like little details like that blow my mind, man. You know? Um, we also glossed over um uh there was um Dennis Hopper as well is uh is a part of this whole um uh thing right now. So um I think we should briefly touch on his character as well. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's, like, the scene where uh, Curse is reading uh, The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot, you know, and, uh, you know, and the interpretation of that is that, uh, you know, Kurtz, uh, you know, he identifies with the hollow men of the Eliot poem, you know, and you know, it touches on, like, how war is just and, uh, you know, the you know, military is a necessity and that sort of thing. But all the times that he's all the time that he's spent in darkness and all of his uh, atrocities that he's committed and his realization that you cannot be civilized in chaos. And it made him focus on the pointlessness, the complete lack of value of war itself, aside from satisfying, you know, oligarchs and things like that and, and, you know, rulers and politicians and that sort of stuff. Yeah, and in this scene, there's a there's a great moment when he's reading the Hollow Men, and uh, Sheen and and Hopper's character are like kind of sitting off um, to the side, listening to Kurtz read this Hollow Men thing, and um, Dennis Hopper is like, who is completely infatuated with um, Marlon Brando's character of Kurtz. You know, um, you know, there's a there's a great line prior to this this scene that I'm going to speak about um, where. He's like, no, but if you could just meet the man, he's like, you know, he he expands my mind. He's like, did you know that like the middle word of life is if, you know, like, you know, just lines like that, man, like are just they're just golden lines, you know. And um, but it, there's this, in this scene in particular, um, you know, he uh, Dennis Hopper's character, um, the unnamed photojournalist, he says to Willard, he goes like, you know, but the, the world doesn't end with a whimper, but with a whimper. And it's it seems like a redundant statement, you know, but if you know this this Holloman um, poem by T.S. Eliot, uh, the very last line is like the, the world doesn't end with a bang, but with a whimper. And so like that's a little uh, and there's a lot of in this in this particular moment, um, 
there's a lot of really to kind of break immersion from the actual film itself. There's a lot of like really um, smart literary references in this moment. And so um, I don't know if you knew this, cause I don't know if you no. uh, read the hollow men, but I read the hollow men after um, uh, watching this film. And the very first line in the hollow men is mystic cuts. He's dead. So the, the, the poem, The Hollow Men, is actually T.S. Eliot um, writing a poem in response to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. But they leave that line out uh, when Brando is actually reading the poem itself, um, obviously, because it would break immersion to, like, read a poem that's about Kurtz. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I mean, I, I read Heart of Darkness, but um, I didn't. I wasn't aware of some of the other stuff I think you're going to say. So, yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, so, uh, so I read Heart of Darkness uh, and and the, the Wasteland and Hollow Man, but uh, you're, you're right. about to get okay. into some stuff I haven't read. Yeah. 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 But I just wanted, I wanted the listener to know that um, that Hollow Man uh, poem that Brandon uh, Brando's character is reading is actually a poem that T.S. Eliot wrote in response to the book Heart of Darkness. So that's. A little like literary reference to like the origin story of like this movie, right? Yeah. And then after this scene, um, Willard uh, Martin Sheen's character is going through um, some of the some of the belongings of Kurtz, and he like goes through his medals and he uh, looks at his nightstand. And on his nightstand, there's two books. Um, one of the book is called uh, uh, The Ritual and the Romance, and the other book is called The Golden, the Golden Bough. <clears throat> and um, I, didn't, I, I knew about The Golden Bough, but I didn't know about this Ritual and Romance, so I, I looked it up, and The Ritual and the Romance is a, a book written by a guy named um, uh, Wester, I think, uh, Joseph Wester. And um, the, the book is like a, a book that uh, sort of accounts like all the things that king arthur did but it was a direct uh influence to t.s Eliot's the wasteland and the wasteland talks about um like the concepts of like death and life and life and death and um so and there seems to be like this t.s Eliot thing seems to have like an underlying current in the story um or in the storytelling of kurtz's character and then the Golden Bow is uh, written by a, a Scottish anthropologist by the name of uh, James Fraser, and it's a thesis. It's like a comparative thesis um, um, based on um, early well, uh, talking about old old uh, pagan religions, and it was uh, it was Fraser's thesis um, that old pagan religions were mostly just fertility cults. Um, that periodically would sacrifice their king, which I, I find very uh, telling and, and sort of foreshadowing like the events that will 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 come to be uh, towards the end of this film. Um, and also interesting enough, the um, the, the the name uh, Golden Bow is actually um, taken from the Latin epic called the Aeneid and oh, yeah. um, written written by Virgil. Yep. And um, there's a there's a there's a part in this epic where um, Aeneas and uh, a Sibyl uh, go to the underworld and they have to present a golden bow to the gatekeeper of the underworld in order to like get gain entrance uh, into uh, Hades. And again, all of these things sort of 
kind of coincide with like what you were saying about this being like sort of like a divine comedy, right? You know, like a journey into the underworld, right? A journey yeah. into the depths of hell, right? Totally. So I think these books were obviously there's a they're in the movie. So like the you know Francis Ford Coppola wanted you to see these books and wanted you to like find sort of like some sort of like uh, connection between these books and the actual story that's being told. And I just thought it was a very interesting moment. Um, <clears throat> if you take the time to like look into these books and see why he picked these two books in particular, and also the hollow men uh, poem, but T.S. Eliot, you know, having a direct reference to the Joseph Conrad book, heart of darkness. I think it was just very interesting and smart literary choices to sort of like just pepper in, to the story very briefly, but like to pepper them in there just to sort of give you like a little context behind um, who this character Kurtz is. You know, I, I wasn't aware of that. And um, I, I came up with the, the divine comedy thing uh, independent of that. So that, that's really, it's maybe, you know, maybe I was on to something with that. I don't know. It was interesting. I, I think, yeah, I think you were. I mean, I, I was, I was actually kind of, when we were talking about this on the phone prior to doing this, I, 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 I kind of like, chuckled to myself when you when you mentioned like the you know the inferno like um analogy because i think that is it, it is very paramount to, and they do, i do think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn there um with the stories being told so well, there is a sense that kurtz is really ready to die too in this whole thing i mean he when you know we talked about when their, their first confrontation, he knows what Willard is there for. And that's possibly because Colby showed up for the same reason earlier. But I think that he looks at Willard and he's like, this is the man who's going to end my life basically. You yeah. Know? And he basically gives Willard his final mission, which is to tell yeah. his son the truth about him, you know, and he, yeah. he's like his whole philosophy and, you know, and he talks about, a moment when in in his in an earlier mission where they there was a village where they inoculated the villagers and the the Viet Cong came in and uh basically cut everyone's arms off and and this and is a pile of little arms and I wept like a grandma yep. right right yeah. yeah and that's when he it, it that's when the realization came to him like a diamond bullet through the center of his head is, is I think right. the language that he used yeah where he's like you have to become barbaric and you have to have no you have to be able to kill without any judgment any kind of apprehension or even passion you can't you have to just execute these things and do what you need to do in order to be successful at something which is ultimately absurd and totally chaotic you know which is like the idea of war complete pointlessness you know and it's hard to tell in that scene um for me as well uh if if Kurtz believes if Kurtz has become insane and, and totalitarian, or if he has succumbed to what it means to win a war, that's horrible. Right. Cause like, you know, in, in the same breath that he says that I wept like some sort of like grieving grandmother. Um, he also in the same breath says that like, you know, and just like a diamond bullet, you know, shot out of a gun into my forehead, I realized, you know, like the pureness, like the, like the true strength it takes to like, to be able to do something that, you know, and, and it's hard to tell if like he, he admires the people that did that, or if he realized that like in order to overcome the evils, 
you have to become even more evil, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting scene for sure. A, definitely for sure. And I think the whole concept of breaking points too. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, it, it, way back in the beginning, we talk about breaking points. The whole movie is about breaking each of these characters, finding their breaking points. So even chef, like he found his breaking point with the tiger. Right. You know? Right. And, uh, um, Dennis Dennis Hopper's character, the unnamed American journalist, makes a statement that he's saying that the man is clear in his mind, but his soul is mad. Yeah, so, I love that. I yeah. love that line too. I and I think that that's too. like yeah. really one of the more significant moments, which kind of beckons to this scene, where I, after experiencing all this atrocity and seeing all these horrible things, his soul is driven mad, but his deductive reasoning was sound. And that's why Kurtz became who he was, you know. And, and then when he's talking to Willard about, you know, he's like, there's nothing I detest more than the stench of lies. Knowing that Corman and all of his, you know, acolytes are going to tell his family their version of what's going on, you know, filtered through the civilization of the mili- the U.S. military, that this guy yeah. lost his mind, he was renegade, he just went off and he needed to, he was out of, so we had to do what we had to do. And I'm sure they would even you know, paint the picture that we didn't kill him. He was killed by his own men or whatever. The Viet Cong finally got him, you know, something like that. There would be a lie. There would be an untruth told. So, and we're coming, we're coming up to the crescendo of this film. And, um, I think it's important to point out, uh, just on what you had mentioned a little bit earlier about like how Kurtz like views, like Willer does, like he's going to be like sort of his, you know, his, his saving grace, uh, if you will, like towards the, you know, um, and throughout the, throughout the interactions that, um, Kurtz and Willard have had, uh, in, in a lot of it, um, Willard is actually imprisoned in like a bamboo sort of like makeshift, like standing cell, or he's like, uh, he's laying in the dirt, but he's got like a cord wrapped around his neck. So he can't go anywhere without choking himself. And then eventually, like, he gets let free. And there's a line with um, Martin Sheen's character was like, um, you know, he knew he knew what I was going to do before I even knew what I was going to do. So, like, he didn't feel any threat to, like, finally, like, let Martin Sheen's character, like, loose, you know. And Martin Sheen's laying in the boat, the, the PBR, and he has this, like, grand re- realization um, in this moment that... Uh, you know, uh, Colonel Kurtz doesn't want to want go out like some, I think he says something along the lines, like he didn't want to go out like some old man, like he wanted to go out as a soldier. And it's in this moment where we get the, the, the final 10 minutes of the film and it's a glorious 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. He also talks about how he did he just wanted the pain to end too, where when, when he let, uh, Willard go, it was almost like, okay, now it's time to die basically. You know, he right. he was like, I've bestowed upon you. I've given your final your final mission. I've done everything I can do. Life is absurd. There's just darkness and despair around me, and it's time to check out. Basically, that's what I how I read that whole thing. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. So now we have this moment, right? Um, we have we have Willard and Willard um, in in very much in the same. Uh, light as uh arnold schwarzenegger and predator uh finally comes to t- comes to task and uh covers his face with um camouflage face paint 
he jumps in the water and we get the iconic scene of Martin Sheen's head popping out of the, the muddy water. Um, and we see a new, we see a new Willard in this moment, like a Willard with, uh, with real, real purpose. I think, you know, he's got a, he's got a mission to do and he's, you can see it in his eyes, you know, we don't see, he's never really fumbling or you know, throughout the film, we can kind of see like the coldness, but we never really see, we never really see Willard um, throughout this film as like an actual assassin or like, you know, what he's actually good at, you know, it's, it's hinted at throughout the film, you know, especially like in the, in the very opening scene where he's like, you know, um, having lunch with those guys and they ask him if he's, you know, has ever done, uh, has he, was he ever like responsible for like the killing of these people and this kind of stuff, you know, and he goes, I, I cannot confirm or can d- deny these things, you know? So we never really see like what the character of Willard is capable of until like this last moment when he's, he's, he's turned on, you know, when he gets turned yeah. on, well, this is a very interesting scene. I love this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that he, the reason he responds that way is because he's, he's like a black ops guy, you know what I mean? And that's right. what the, right. the required answer is. He's like, I can't, you know, it's top secret. It doesn't exist. And they even said this mission doesn't exist either. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. And, um, I think that Willard really is uncomfortable with, with a lot of what he's being asked to do by the brass. And there's a point where he's even like, I don't even know what I'm not, I wasn't even sure what I was going to do when I got there. You know, I mean, it's like, if you think about it, it's like you kill another American, a guy you're on the same side as, you know, but then you see all the stuff and then you realize after talking to him and learning about all the stuff, you realize it's, it's almost like a mercy killing in some ways. It's like, he's aiding him in his own suicide. That's how I read a lot of this stuff. And then, yeah, I I agree. There's also the angle which we see when he murders him, he murders him like in this really with a sword, basically, you know, like a machete. And it's this very primal thing. And when he emerges from the temple after, after assassinating Kurtz, you know, it beckons back to like, like early man, like a primate, you know, like killing another member to get a different dominance in the, in the group or something, you know, and the cult, I'm gonna call him a cult. They they view him almost as like this is okay. This is our new our new god, like our new leader. This is him. Yeah, they all they all take a knee and like let him pass, right? You know. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah. a real heavy like ending to the movie, and then he just uh, collects Lance and they leave. They get on the boat and float away. Well, I also in this scene I also took away another thing too. Well, two things actually. One thing I want to touch on um, that you and I had talked about previously. Um, so uh, sort of aid in like the, the comparison of this movie having like an underlying dark comedy feel to it. Um, there's a scene right just right before. Uh, so Willard, uh, Willard comes out of the, the, the water and he's sneaking around and you see him like he's like a ninja at this point. Right. You know, you get to see like Willard in action at this point. Right. And he sneaks through this huge party that they're having outside. And it's like cow sacrifice that they're doing out in this like big courtyard outside of the temple. He sneaks into the temple. He finds a guard. He slits his throat, and he's slowly, stealthily, like walking up on Kurtz. And Kurtz is reading uh, from one of his um, many memoirs that he's written while he's been there, into like this uh, tape recorder. And there's this like this is line that it's 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 very it's very pertinent. I think and it's very um, it's very important to sort of like to kind of like digest a bit where he, he reads this line and he says the the United States Air Force uh, will not let the airmen uh, paint the word fuck on the side of their planes because they deem it too obscene. 
And then it's right after he utters this line that he, he notices that Willard's behind him. And um, it is also important to notice, uh, to, to, to state that um, when Willard does uh, assassinate uh, Kurtz, Kurtz actually does fight back a little bit. He doesn't just accept it. He actually does sort of move around a bit um, and sort of block the, the, the swings that are coming at him. And the other thing that I wanted to touch on is uh, about those little literary references that were like uh, dropped uh, a little bit earlier um, in the film uh, from this from this moment. And they all touch on like old pagan religions. And, uh, and you know, if you think about like the, the Scandinavians and like the Viking culture, right in the Viking culture, like uh, there is no the only honorable death is a death on the battlefield. Right. right yep. And and I think I think that's very important to sort of it's it's not really expounded on and it's not really touched on but I got that uh, kind of vibe that um, not with just the books that were like laid out on the on the nightstand but also in that last little moment where Martin Sheen's kind of his thoughts are narrating the scene and he's like saying that like he realizes that he doesn't want to die as an old man but he wants to die as a soldier you get like this sort of like Viking sort of influence there where like. Marlon Brando's character, um, for whatever reason, believes that he has to go out a warrior, you know, so he wants death by the blade. And I think the blade thing is also very important, too, because there are guns available, right? Sure. But yeah. Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen opts for the blade instead of the sword or instead of the gun, you yeah. know. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's also very I think it's very subtle, but I think it's very important in this in this scene, too, that to die by the blade is sort of like this old, you know, it goes back to the, you know, uh, if ritual and romance is about King Arthur and uh, the golden bow is about pagan religions, right? Well, all those old like medieval and Viking cultures that they, they all believe by death by the sword, you know what I mean? Yeah. And absolutely. like, and uh, the, the best ex execution you could get, like in, in English times, um, having your head cut off by an axe was considered inhumane because axes were typically blunt and it took m multiple whacks. Right. Yeah. But if you were an, if you were an honorable knight that like did something horrible, like if you uh, were considered like if you had been accused of treason, a knight would be executed by a sword because sword was sharper and the, the cut would be clean, you know, and that's in the medieval times. Right. But then you go back to like the Viking times and like death on the battlefield, right. Yeah. Death by blades. So there's like there's twofold things going on here that like are sort of foreshadowed by these like literary like references that they drop uh, a little bit earlier on in the in the, in the film. And I, I, I find that very telling, but it's never really expounded upon. So it's the only speculation that I have in the scene. But I feel like that was the intention there with that with that execution scene of, of Kurtz. Yeah, no, I, I, that wasn't lost on me either, man. That, that's the fact. Because all these years that I've been watching and rewatching this movie, I'm like, why don't you just shoot him? You know, but it's like, yeah, there was, there had to be some element of conflict at the end. You know. Yeah, yeah. So just um, you know, some final words about this too is uh, my takeaway from this is that in general, the the reality that we choose to live in is kind of an illusion, and uh, you know we build up we collectively you know build up these constructs versus what's actually going on in the world you know and humans are these kind of uh data chunking hunters and gatherers you know this film and the absurdity the comedy that arises from these illusions that we have kurtz was able to see true reality 
amidst all of the illusions and constructs that the civilization had placed on it, on, on you know, superimposed over chaos. He saw that war was chaos, war was pointless, and if we are going to engage in war, that we have to give up all of the humane, civilized constructs that we put up and have to, to really engage in that whole thing. And that's, that's kind of like what I think his moment with the severed arms is that's his moment of realization. And that's when he decided that it's like, you know, there's no rules. Like there's no, this is completely absurd to not allow these, these airmen to, to print fuck on the side of their plane as they napalm, you know, civilians and children, you know, as well as the, the, the forest, the, you know, the rainforest. Right. So that's kind of like my whole, you know, takeaway from this thing after spending a lifetime, a watch of this movie, like every few months, you know, Mine is um, it's 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 very closely similar to yours, um, and I you had mentioned earlier, and I really liked uh, the way you put it. I, I think breaking points is uh, is my takeaway, but uh, breaking points with um, like sort of like looking inside of yourself uh, are the two things that I take away from this film, because um, I think obviously this uh, displays you know the horrors of war and the levels of mental like um like strength that people have and and the difference in you know the people that can uh, people can stand there while bombs are going off and like not be phased by it at all or like the people who see like a woman running for something and they start shooting you know or you know um just like the different levels of crazy but i think it's like uh in a way it's it's uh an introspective film to show that like um we we all kind of start off like kurtz or willard and the deeper we go into the jungle um the deeper we go into ourselves and 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 either either find the strength that we that we didn't know we had or find the insanity that we didn't know we had and um and and then the story sort of just tells that, you know, that, you know, you can take you can take a decorated soldier like Colonel Kurtz and throw him in the jungle and he sees something so horrible that he loses his mind. Or you can take somebody like Willard, who has seen equally as horrible things and has done equally as horrible things, but can keep calm throughout the entire like uh, ordeal, you know, and um and it's a very, I think it's a, I think on a, on a, on many levels, this is a, a psychological uh, thriller in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it really touches on like what, what people are capable of at their worst. Now the question is, is did Willard ever actually reach his breaking point? I don't think so, honestly. I don't know, but there's a, <clears throat> there is a, there is a thing in this movie that doesn't sit well with me, and I don't know what to make of it. But, um, and I, I know it's, I know it's in his, I know it's in his orders uh, to to assassinate Kurtz. Yes. But it's never, I don't, and unless I missed it, I, it's never, it's never told to Willard that he needs to bring any kind of proof back. No, and no, yet, yeah. And yet he he takes a lot of his writings and carries them out with him. And I don't know, I don't know if that was like, so like, you know, if you're going to go back to, um, 
so there's a, there's a very interesting scene also there uh, when he's going through his writings. There's a big scrawling in in red ink or red pencil that says "exterminate all the brutes," right? Yep. And um, that's actually that's actually a callback to um, or it says "exterminate the enemies," but um, but that's a callback to the Joseph Conrad yeah, book. Yeah, uh, it's, um, it's a line in Marks Darkness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a little nod to the book. But there's there's um, there's something else in the book that's not really you know like we said like the book is is an inspiration for the movie but they're not really like telling the same story but in the book um, Marlo who is Willard's character um, is sort of infatuated with the man Kurtz in the book Heart of Darkness yeah. and I wondered I wonder at at the end of that did does that represent like Willard sort of like having some compassion for the man or like some infatuation with the man? Because I don't see the purpose of taking his, 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 I, I know he has to like talk to his son, right. Yeah, and yeah. he, and they, and all that kind of stuff. So that, that could be like, that's all that is, but it also could be that Willard uh, had some respect for the man at the end of it. And you're not really ever like given any sort of, cause the movie just ends, you know, so you don't really know if he was infatuated with the man or had respect for him, or if he was simply taking like these writings because it was the last thing of like a, like the, this, the, who the man Kurtz really was to give it to his son. You know, you don't really know. Well, the way I saw it was that, you know, his mission, his final mission was to tell his son about Kurtz, you know, Kurtz's son about his life and to give him, tell him mm-hmm. the truth that he, you know, there was a method. He he didn't just go crazy. Well, debatably, it, uh, and from Kurtz's perspective, he didn't go nuts and just you know start acting on his own. Um, and that he want he was going to present that stuff to his son once he got to an appropriate age to where he can understand what's going on with this thing, you know. And that's why he left with all of Kurtz's writings. You know that that was but my you, take. But away. to do but to do something like that, then you would have to have some like level of respect for the man. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought it was, to me, it was pretty clear that he thought that he, you know, it's complicated. I think that Willard believed that Kurtz was probably wrong. Like, he's not following orders. You know, he's, where like, we all agreed that we're going to do this thing as we're directed to by the, by the U.S. military, you know. Right. Willard is still a soldier. You know, he's not, he's like doing his mission, you know. I think that he, what Kurtz was saying resonated with him you know, to a certain degree, because he saw just the general absurdity of his mission and the whole point and the pointlessness of war and all that sort of stuff. But on the same level, I don't think that he was going to become like a descendant of his or join his cult or anything like that, or even take his mantle as the leader of this group. You know, I thought that he was like, no, I, I, I don't either. But like, I think it's like one of those sort of like even like a Lovecraftian or like sort of like aspect too, or like, you know, the, the protagonist uh, to some extent, you know, will not leave this experience without being like afflicted by it in some way. And yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I do agree with you. Like he's still a soldier. He still has a job. Um, and so like his job now is to like, you know, take this and tell the truth to his son, you know, yeah. but um but to have respect for somebody, even, you know, in the soldier community, right? Like, you know, they wouldn't have even sent, like, Willard there in the first place to assassinate Kurtz had they not thought that, like, he had gone, like, you know, committed treason and gone AWOL. And um, and so, like, if if Willard is a soldier, you know, he, he lives by a certain code, then, um, 
you would think that he would have some sort of like detestation like towards uh uh you know Kurtz. But the fact that he's willing to like, you know, fulfill like this journey after Kurtz is dead tells me that on some level he had respect for the man. And and that's just an interesting concept because you killed the guy. You obviously don't agree with what he's doing, yet um, you're still willing to like show some sort of like empathy towards the man and like you know do the thing, the, do the the like the like, fulfill the wish of a dying man kind of thing. Yeah, well, you know? I think that's what makes the movie interesting. You know, what I mean, it's like you know, I I also don't think that I don't think anyone is just like an automate automaton. Like they just do what they're told. I think they have to execute some kind of. Um, analysis of it you know but but also it's like yeah he's still that's why I, I doubt that's why i question whether or not he actually hit his breaking point you know what i mean like because he was still you know obviously going through all this hardship the beginning he seemed pretty broken but he was able to collect himself and show up at you know at some uh, at the uh the meeting that he had with um with the brass and get it together enough to go up river and do his job and still at the end he hadn't completely given over to the madness like he was still rational in a lot of his thinking and that's why like i'm like man everyone broke in this movie except for willard really you know yeah and that's why this film will, will and always be worth a rewatch because oh, yeah. i find i think you'll always find new new things in the film that you didn't notice before i mean i noticed a lot like on these rewatches that i did um like leading up to this podcast that I hadn't caught, you know, prior to that. And especially cause I had a different reason for watching these, you know, um, uh, wa- watching this film again. And, um, and I think, yeah, I think this film is, is genius in that, that it doesn't give you sort of any real closure, you know, and, um, and it just sort of like, it just sort of ends, you know, it ends with him walking out of that temple and that's it, you know, roll credits. And it's like, you know, it's it's a it's 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 a perfect film in that sense, because like any good story, um, it, it's left up for the viewer um, to kind of make your own like decision on like, what you just watched. You yeah, know? No, totally. Yeah. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, this if this is a, an ongoing thing that's going to appear on the Everything Went Black Patreon in the future. But this is a you know a version that we came out on the on the free uh, normal stream for anyone who is not yet a Patreon member. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Evan. Appreciate your time. And uh, yep. So take care, everyone. Yeah, looking forward to this, man. I can't wait to keep on doing this. Take care, everybody.
Every time I think I'm gonna wake up back in the jungle. When I was home after my first tour, it was worse. I'd wake up and there'd be nothing.